Good afternoon. And good afternoon to you all. Colleagues, guests, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Alan Tate. I'm Pro Vice Chancellor for Curriculum and Qualifications. And it's my great pleasure to welcome you all here um, to hear the inaugural lectures of no less than three professors of sociology Mari Gillespie, Elizabeth Silver, and Kath Woodward. I think this must be a unique event, don't you? Have we ever had three professors of sociology giving an inaugural before? I doubt it very much. So today we're going to hear from three distinguished professors of sociology about their experiences of conducting social research. Research that strives not only to know, but to make a difference. And we're going to discover, I understand, why number crunching will never give us the complete picture. Unless it's allied to human creativity as well, which has a vital role to play in sociological research. Our first speaker today is Professor Mari Gillespie. Over the last 30 years, Mari has developed and led a new interdisciplinary research agenda in the study of diaspora, media, cultural difference, and cultural change. Her interest in these matters has deep personal roots. As the child of Irish parents living in London, she became sensitised early in life to diasporic culture and cultural difference. Subsequent experiences served to develop these interests further. Studying a BSc Honours in Sociology at Southampton University, and then spending nearly a decade travelling across North and Central America, North Africa and France, learning Arabic and French on the way. On returning to the UK, Mari completed a postgraduate certificate in education and spent 10 years as a teacher and researcher in Southall, West London, where she not only worked but lived and immersed herself in the local Punjabi culture. After doing an MA at the London University Institute of Education and then a PhD at Brunel University, both focusing on television and South Asian culture, Mari became a lecturer, first at the Centre for Journalism uh, and Mass Communications at Cardiff University, and then at University of Wales, Swansea. She had also, however, always been a huge admirer of the Open University, and was delighted when she was offered a post here as senior lecturer in 2001, and she was appointed, appointed Professor of Sociology in 2007. Since 2005, Mari has been co-director of the ESRC-funded Centre for Research on Socio-Cultural Change, CRESC, a joint venture between the Open University and the University of Manchester. During her time at the Open University, Mari has contributed to a number of master's-level modules. She was deputy chair of the module Understanding Media, where she was involved in the production of cutting-edge and award-winning interactive DVDs, and she's currently a member of the module team D844 Ethnography. Mara's research has contributed to defining a new field of inquiry, diaspora media studies. Findings generated by her articulation of normally distinct research fields have fed into national and international public and policy discussions on pressing contemporary issues such as multiculturalism, cosmopolitanism, cultural diversity and anti-racism. Her research has an international reputation and has been translated into numerous languages. Mari has built up enduring international research exchanges and links. Her monograph, Television, Ethnicity and Cultural Change, has stimulated many parallel and comparative studies around the world. Still in print after nearly two decades, it is a key text in sociology, media studies and anthropology courses worldwide. Her work on diasporic comedy writers and performers and their role in combating racism and xenophobia has been widely disseminated in EU media policy fora. And this strand of her research fed into a national survey with BBC One on British humour. 
She was principal investigator on After September the 11th, television news and transnational audiences, and shifting securities, news cultures before and after the Iraq War 2003. Two projects which explored public and media reactions to momentous events. The findings of both of these have been widely debated in policy and media circles, supporting initiatives to improve public knowledge and understanding of policymaking and policies. One of Mari's key achievements has been the development of novel methodological approaches to research questions which have wide academic, public and policy relevance. And this may explain her success in obtaining several large research grants in intensely competitive, peer-reviewed research programmes. Distinguished guests, colleagues, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Professor Mari Gillespie. Well, thank you very much indeed uh, for that, Alan. Good afternoon, and it's uh, really great to see so many colleagues, friends and family here. Thank you all very much indeed for coming. Talking about family, the other day, my daughter, Rosa, picked up the publicity poster for our inaugural lecture. Mum, she said, do you want the quick and simple answer to the question in the title of your inaugural, how do you know? How do we know? Just Google it. Then my other daughter, Margie, joined in the larking around. How do we know what, mother, she said in a withering tone. What is the what? <laughs> Teasing provocations that nonetheless sparked some thoughts as I sat down to prepare this talk. Rosa drew my attention to epistemological issues, to theories of knowledge, its production, acquisition and communication, reflecting a shift in ways of knowing the social in an age of big data. Margie, in more pragmatic mode, pointed me towards ontological questions, to questions about what we want to know about diasporas and why. For those perhaps unfamiliar with the term diaspora, it comes from the Greek word meaning a scattering or a dispersal, and it's now commonly used to refer to the migration of people from a common homeland. We talk of the Indian or the Irish diaspora, but like all concepts, it's deeply contested. I'm grateful to my daughter's provocations because they reminded me of the importance of connecting what and how questions, of not collapsing ontological and epistemological issues in this synoptic account of my ways of knowing diaspora in three very different contexts. First, I'm going to talk about my research at the BBC World Service. Then, I'll talk about my research in a school in a multi-ethnic neighbourhood, Southall in West London. And then I'll talk a bit about my research in multilingual households across eight British cities. But, back to Google and big data for a moment. To put on the table a major current challenge to empirical social scientists. I'm using the term big data as a shorthand for the explosion of huge automated quantitative data sets derived from web traffic and social media. Software and sensors now track the traces that we leave behind in our everyday transactions from shopping to Facebooking. Big data is a new kind of economic asset, like gold or currency, 
and it's used to identify trends in what large populations do and to predict what they will do. And it has the potential for real benefits as well as real dangers. <clears throat> Some argue that big, big, big data methods of, uh, are more objective and leading to non-humanist approaches to knowing the social. And if this is so, then our social theory, as well as our methods of social research, will need rethinking. And this is something that we've begun to do collectively, collectively at Cresc, where I'm fortunate enough to work. So how do these issues connect with my research? My most recent collaborative project reconceived the BBC World Service as a multi-diasporic institution. It was a partnership project with the BBC World Service. With a large team of researchers, we investigated Bush House, the historic home of the World Service, as a diasporic contact and conflict zone, where successive waves of émigré writers, dissident artists, refugee poets and intellectuals congregated to voice the BBC's broadcasts to the world in many tongues. The World Service had been a lifeline to me during my misspent youth travelling the world. I was drawn to the fascinating world of Bush House where the forces of colonialism and cosmopolitanism battled it out on a daily basis and where many tongues could be heard conversing in the canteen, in the club and in its labyrinthine corridors. One aim of this project was to understand changing configurations of audiences at the World Service. Currently, some 183 million people either tune in or log on to its 27 language services, including English. We began reanalyzing big data sets on its online users. And to our surprise, over 50% of the users of most, not all, of these websites are based not in the regional target markets that are designated by the funders of the World Service, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, but are scattered across the globe and could be described as digital diasporas. These diasporas are connected primarily by language and are an unintended consequence of media and migration. They are, in fact, an artefact of the World Service, and some have argued that they have the potential to shift national frames of political debate and also to contribute to processes of democratisation. Using an array of software packages, social media monitoring, data mining, natural language deciphering and sentiment analysis, digital diasporas can be studied with greater accuracy and precision than before. For example, the Webometric diagram shows how the BBC Hindi website sits within the web, the web, web universe, how it links to and is linked to by other, other websites. However, useful as these software packages are, they cannot analyse the quality of digital debates, nor can they take on board irony or humour or the creativity of conversational talk. But... If we combine qualitative and big data sets, we can begin to get a much more complete 
and complex picture of both the demographic and discursive aspects of these new spaces of communication. However, most of our case studies so far suggest that digital debate forums at the World Service are not quite as open, reciprocal or as deliberative as they might be, being mainly confined to well-educated males in the 18 to 35 age group. Topics like, is chocolate better than sex, still tend to attract vastly more animated interactions on forums than news or current affairs topics. So much for internet and democracy, you may say. But consider this. As a topic, that might be quite subversive if discussed among women and men on Arabic or Somali forums. So where do big data leave empirical social scientists? Are social scientists increasingly redundant in an age of big data? Some colleagues think that we're not really up to this challenge. But I would argue that the analytical powers of social scientists remain essential to both critiquing and to reusing big data for our very own purposes. For sure, we'll need to become a lot more digitally literate and we will need to build further partnerships with government and commercial institutions if we are to hold them to account. Big data may pose important challenges, but we're not out of business yet. And in a world of big data, methodological pluralism will become ever more important. Researching diasporas at World Service meant that we had to bridge divisions between social sciences and humanities. We had to find multiple points of entry if we were to begin to understand this complex organisation comparatively and historically. Over three or four years, our multidisciplinary and multilingual core team of about 12 researchers and some 50 part-time researchers worked together, and some of us continue to do so. For example, we experimented with and adapted methods such as the Witness Seminar, a form of oral history that enabled us to tap into deep layers of institutional memory Our witness seminars brought to light how diasporic politics and the identities of journalists were negotiated in the reporting of critical events such as the birth of Bangladesh and the fall of the Berlin Wall. We also organised a witness seminar around the 70th anniversary of the BBC Urdu services. We work very closely with current and ex-World Service staff some of whom I'm so delighted to see here today. We documented diasporic creativity in the poetry and novels written by World Service journalists. And together, we have produced one of the most comprehensive bodies of research on the World Service, which is publicly available on our project website. So if you want to know more about diasporas at the World Service, I suggest you just Google it. After 80 years, however, the doors of Bush House will close forever in June this year, and perhaps also with it, its vibrant cosmopolitan culture. As it comes under the licence fee in 2014, I believe it's very important that the British government and the British public appreciate the hugely significant role played by diasporas, not only within the BBC, 
but also as an integral part of British history. The BBC World Service has been one of Britain's greatest sources of soft power and cultural diplomacy, and this is largely due to its diasporic staff. But their voices, though deeply familiar across the globe, are unknown, and their stories are untold at home. Such issues concerning the politics of voice and representation have been at the heart of my research from the outset. My interest in researching diasporas was shaped by my own experiences of being a plastic paddy growing up in London in an Irish Catholic family, acutely aware of cultural differences, of ethnocentrism and of the derogatory perceptions of held of the Irish. I developed a sense of ambivalent positioning, neither British nor really Irish, and summer holidays in Mayo and Donegal felt like time travel, worlds apart from my life in London. But as time went by, I grew to appreciate the ambivalent stance, not least for the comparativist perspective that it instilled in me, and which became a foundational way of knowing diasporas. The comparativist perspective drew me to adopt ethnography as my chosen method, albeit an open-ended ethnography, which began in classical form, but which has been adapted and bent and mixed and matched with other methods. It has meant a rejection of methodological nationalism, that is, a taking, taking the nation as the primary unit of analysis. It has meant adopting multilingual epistemologies as a way of challenging racialized conceptions of minorities. It has also been a way of understanding the more complex empirical realities of diasporas as heterogeneous, stratified, changing social and cultural formations. Researching diasporas at the World Service couldn't have been more different to my fieldwork in a Punjabi neighbourhood in Southall, West London. Originally intending to stay for only two weeks on a teaching contract, I remained in Southall for ten years. I was assigned to a school where 99% of the kids were of South Asian background and 99% of the teachers were white British. Southall had just experienced riots that had flared in Brixton, Toxteth and Hansworth, all places with large minority ethnic populations where poverty, racism and heavy-handed policing had, had led to conflict and violence. The sixth formers that I taught were so angry, they were angry with the school for failing them, they were angry with the police for harassing them, they were angry with parents for their passivity in what they saw as the face of ongoing assaults and they were angry because they felt they had no voice, that no one was listening. My first piece of ethnographic research documented their views on the causes and consequences of the 81 riots. Today, we're exploring similar issues about about last summer's riots in a citizen journalism project with the World Service and with diasporic young Londoners. This kind of grassroots, politically engaged action research became a kind of template for future research projects. But how could Southall youth find a voice if they couldn't read or write competently 
or speak persuasively. So I went on to develop further teaching and research projects um, as I did my MA at the Institute of Education. And these were aimed at developing multilingual and, and, and plural media literacies. I taught new arrivals, mainly from the Punjab, but also refugees from Iran and Iraq in a hut separated from the rest of the school. And as a teacher, eavesdropping on daily conversations during a 30-minute form period time, my, atten my attention turned to conversations which began, Did you see? I instantly related to the comparativist perspectives elaborated. And my fieldwork documented living room wars in their home, Bollywood or Hollywood, sacred soaps or EastEnders, BBC, CNN or Durdashan. The seemingly trivial and inconsequential talk about TV became the focus of my PhD research. TV audience research was no longer an end in itself. It became a beautifully oblique way of researching how culture and identity are negotiated because when people discuss media narratives, they engage in very telling forms of self-narration. When they discussed Hindi movies, at that time delivered with pints of milk by the milkman, they discussed changes in religious and moral beliefs, the nature of good and evil, kinship duties, izat or respect, and gender divisions. Parents used new technologies like the video cassette recorder to renegotiate tradition, and Hindi films to teach the kids about the culture that they so feared they would lose. My fieldwork involved much more than a detached analysis of talking spaces around TV. Ethnography as a specific method is characterised by participant observation, as well as observing one's participations. I also conducted a large-scale survey mixing qual qualitative and quantitative data, discovering, among other things, that for young people in Southall, culture meant religion. But survey methods only have limited use. However, when informed by ethnographic fieldwork, we can bring the snail's eye and the bird's eye view into dialogue. Or in Weber's terms, we can begin to arrive at a Verstehen, understanding by standing beside or standing under rather humbly, and begreifen, grasping the bigger picture. For two years, I watched the ancient Indian religious epic, every, the Mahabharata, every Saturday that had been serialised on BBC Two, and I watched it with one Hindu family in Southall. Every Saturday, the TV set was garlanded, incense was lit, holy food was eaten, in the sacred spaces that were created around these viewing rituals. We also compared and contrasted different versions of the epic. For example, Peter Brooks' multicultural production for Channel 4 and different Indian versions. And from the conversations sparked by watching together, we tried to draw out a deeper understanding of Hindu cosmology and philosophy. We discussed notions of cosmic time, whether there could be such a thing as a just war. And we tried to grapple with the profound ambivalence of moral law or dharma. And it wasn't all serious stuff. We also produced a, a, a very cheeky and rather subversive school concert sketch 
entitled Dirty Dancing at Diwali, which caused hilarity and controversy in equal measure, revealing a good deal about intergenerational cultural change. The key point here is that ethnographic research is a process of collaborative creation and learning. It's more than a method and more than a genre of writing. I believe it's an ethos based on reciprocity and respect for one's collaborators. Living in Southall enabled me to learn, to develop and experiment with the kinds of transcultural ways of knowing that had begun with my learning life with my grandmother, with my Aunt Kate, with my mother and father, and which is captured in my research motto, let's make the strange familiar and the familiar strange. This kind of transcultural epistemology um, in my early research translated into later projects aimed at analysing public knowledge and understanding of security issues and critical events. This had been a key topic of my work in Southall, where I focused strongly on young people's responses to the media representations of the first Gulf War of 1990 and 91. Ten years later, I led a project called After September 11, and for that project developed collaborative media ethnography as a method. Working with 20 multilingual research assistants, we explored reactions among diaspora audiences to the mediation of the 9-11 attacks. Here again, the comparativist perspective came to the fore in the concept of our ground zeros, as when Kurdish refugees recounted their experiences of chemical warfare instigated by Saddam Hussein and Halabja, and Palestinians told of their painful memories of devastating critical events in Gaza. In a follow-up project called Shifting Securities, I further refined this research design. This project connected work on diasporic audiences, news texts and discourses, and on the professional practices of journalists, politicians and security policy makers. This complex but practical methodological design allowed for deep empirical study of the nexus between news media, security and citizenship. Over 300 ethnographic interviews are now archived at the National Data Centre and are available for reuse. But more than that, they provide a rich public archive of diasporas, media and memory during this period. Such diasporic-mediated memories do not morally relativise the horrors of 9-11 but they do place them in perspective which profoundly challenge common Western assumptions. And it is this research that has led us to recognise the huge importance of the BBC's Afghan, Somali, Arabic and Persian services for refugee diasporas who, when forced to flee, do so with their media tastes and habits. This methodological template has again been adapted and used on a transnational scale in our research on the BBC World Service. For example, in our work on the hugely popular Afghan version of Radio 4's The Archers. This has been running since 1993, and some 60-70% to of the Afghan population still listen to it. Our book, 
based on a three-year research on the three-year research project, analyzes soaps or dramas for development in a score of countries and attests to the power of good trash in making information about AIDS and landmines and maternal health widely available. And this is also due in large part to the diasporic creativity of the producers involved. So now we come back full circle to where I began today. And by way of summary, a few points. First, provocations, even those of teasing teenage daughters, are good to think with. Second, big data pose challenges, but if we become digitally literate and forge creative collaborations with public and commercial organisations, our research can make a difference beyond the academy. Third, diasporas are of growing cultural, political and economic significance. But if we are to grasp their significance, we need to embrace transcultural ways of knowing and bring the snail's eye and the bird's eye view into dialogue. Fourth, there are no privileged methods, only pragmatic decisions. How we know depends on what we want to know and why but we need to align rather than to collapse or confuse ontological and epistemological issues. Fifth, methodological experimentation and pluralism are fun ways to play with research designs and devices. Sixth, the question of how we know is possibly one of the most important questions connecting academics to public life. And how we address it, I believe, has very important implications for trust and transparency in public institutions today. Finally, I owe a huge debt of gratitude to my husband, Tom, and to my family, as well as to my many wonderful collaborators. You know who you are, and thank you. And I also would like to thank my fellow colleagues, Elizabeth and Kath, for sharing the stage with me today. Thank you all. Thank you very much indeed, Mari. Let me turn uh, us now to the second of our inaugurals from Professor Elizabeth Silver. It was the prospect of changing the world in the face of repression that enticed Professor Elizabeth Silver into a career in sociology. Growing up in Brazil under an authoritarian dictatorship, her, sociolo her sociology studies at high school inspired her with the revelation that the world we live in is of our own making. She went on to study social sciences at Sao Paulo University, where undergraduate life was both exciting and risky. Students were obliged to change the covers on their books in order, in order to conceal those which were seen as subversive by the regime. And alongside her studies, Elizabeth was involved in underground political work. She did a, she did a master's degree in political sciences, while at the same time working for the key left-wing research institute in Brazil, DIESE, a trade union-supported body which countered government economic policies. Here she worked with some key figures in Brazilian politics, two of whom went on to become national presidents. 
While at this organisation, the focus of her work was industrial relations and technological change, and she was a member of the first government committee on the effects of automation. She then came to Imperial College London to complete her PhD in industrial sociology, working on a comparison of innovation in car production at two different Ford Motor Company bases, Dagenham in the UK and Sao Bernardo in Brazil. The book which came out of her PhD, Remaking the Fordist Factory, remains a key text on the auto industry. Elizabeth returned to Brazil to teach at the University of Campinas, Unicamp, and then spent five years in the United States, first as a visiting scholar at Harvard, and then in a scholarship and associate professor post in sociology at Brown University, before returning to the UK to work at Leeds University. At Leeds where Elizabeth was responsible for setting up the Gender Analysis and Policy Unit, her research focused on household technologies and gender relations, and then moved on to wider issues of feminism. In her most recently published book, Technology, Family, Culture, Elizabeth recounts how the experience of motherhood prompted a shift in her research interests. Elizabeth joined the Open University in 2000 as research director of the National Everyday Cultures Programme. And this programme helped to place OU sociology strongly on the national map and planted the seed for the bid which led to the creation and development of the Centre for Research on Sociocultural Change. At that time, she was also engaged in the most comprehensive ESRC-funded study of UK culture ever carried out, the Cultural Capital and Social Exclusion Project with colleagues at the University of Manchester. At the Open University, Elizabeth has contributed to undergraduate and postgraduate courses in the Faculty of Social Sciences, most notably introducing the social sciences, sociology and society, making social worlds and the research methods dissertation in social sciences. She has been engaged in dynamic international research networks for publications, seminars and projects and has been a visiting scholar in the United States, France and Brazil. Currently, Elizabeth is researching visual art, objects and haunting, a term which she says refers to the ghosts imprinted in materials and objects we live with. She is also developing a new area of research on dreams in urban space and in artworks. Distinguished guests, colleagues, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Professor Elizabeth Silver. to do anything here? No. Good. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Alan. And my friends, colleagues and family, thank you for being here. Uh, my path through sociology, my methodological journeys, and my movements through social spaces are closely linked. Three main sites, the countries I lived in, framed this trajectory. Brazil, the UK, and the US. I lived in Brazil until finishing my MA. I'm a child of the dictatorship. I was 11 years old when this regime was imposed and political activity informed a lot of what I engaged with and how I did things. Awareness of repression and protection formed my adolescent self. I was 14 when I first read sociology and discovered that the world 
we have is made by us. I learned that things are not simply given. Things can be changed. And I wanted to change the world. I went to University of Sao Paulo to study social sciences, which was full of spies from the military. Social sciences were thought as a ground for producing subversives. And, as Alan mentioned, to read books like Marx's Capital, we had to change the covers. Also, Rosa Luxemburg, or Lenin, or Trotsky, but Hannah Arendt too. There were no translations, and we had to learn languages to learn things that interested us. The spectrum of the not permitted was wide, but the number of those taking risks was not as small. I studied shanty towns in local for cultural exclusion courses. I took part in many political demonstrations, organized a few, did underground work, was arrested, had much fear, and I had friends arrested, tortured, killed. I identify four moments in my ways of knowing. Imagine that, having read a lot about the real class, the proletariat, somewhat mystified in my formation because it had been known in forbidden literature, I found myself a job as a sociologist in industrial relations in a multinational company. Imagine that in my fantasy, this was akin to being a good spy. I was going to learn all about domination, and I could not help feeling in my studies of labor turnover, talking to workers on the assembly line under the guise of perfecting Taylorism and Fordism, that I was actually embracing the real cause of the real class to change the world. Well, my first sociological experience then concerned industrial working life, what it means to be a worker, have rights, be on assembly line, go on strikes. This was a phase of learning to produce numbers, read numbers, and negotiate on the basis of numbers. Of course, numbers are about issues. And mine related to both knowing and transforming concrete working and living conditions. Life history was part of this, as was my first use of computer program to analyze life, life course employment mobility and SPSS. My MA focused these matters, and so did my first book full of engagements with theory about the degradation of work under modern capitalism. I was fully involved in politics against the dictatorship, but at the setting of democratization, I had moved on. I was in London. My second moment corresponds to four years doing PhD at the Imperial College in Industrial Sociology. Now, you can imagine that in 1984, the UK offered similar imagery to the repression of the Brazilian working class, which I had lived with. <coughs> I could not believe the news reports of the miners' strikes and touches government repressive practices. Industrial working life 
and technological change figured high in my interests, and I saw no point in being in Britain if I weren't to understand the British ways. I embarked on a cross-national comparison of international car production in Dagenham and San Bernardo. How do we know? To know, we have to be able to bear the unknown. I had no idea about how far I would be able to go into my project of learning about the introduction of 120 robots at Dagenham to produce this sierra. Similarly, what would I make about the eight robots being introduced in San Bernardo to produce this court to be sold in Scandinavia? It was claimed that technological innovation was needed to produce world quality. How would these differences in levels of automation compare when the same international quality product was aimed at? These now very clear questions seemed rather confusing then as I went about the industrial plant at Dagenham, visiting it many times in the most unsocial hours, given entry by individuals of different provenance, from European operations director to a unit head, contacts enabled by Imperial College's connections and Greater London Council, the old GLC, plus trade unionists and shop floor workers, contacted from various left-wing organizations. Yes, my Brazilian connections were transferable. And I was doing ethnography and also working with numbers, diagrams, flowcharts, qualitative interviews. I had not studied actor network theory at that time. This was 84, 85. But I was clearly following the actors to as far as they'd let me. And they included the PhD regulations and funding. This PhD thesis, in English, of course, became my second book in Portuguese. And I thought my career was to follow in Brazil, but it didn't. Now... I'm in a transition phase when my sociology begins to change the most. I am in the United States. Following a visiting fellowship at Harvard, I win a scholarship at Brown University to work <coughs> as a sociology professor. While it was my work on technological industrial innovation that opened these doors, by the time I left, my chief concern was the everyday, the domestic gender. Technology is part of our everyday in contemporary life, and we have complex relationships with machines in our domestic environments. However, research and development in technology has persistently ignored the everyday, the domestic. Yet, many ways of life are constructed around a particular technology. Examples are the car and the computer, but the washing machine and the fridge, too. Despite this, it's easy to disregard how profoundly affected by technology our lives are. And importantly, it is difficult for social scientists to devise ways of tracing the connections between personal lives and the objects we live with. How to know about this? As I changed the focus of my concerns, 
I became aware of turns in my own biography. Let me indulge in reminiscing. I was 15 years old and arguing with my mother. I said I never wanted to be a Hoover driver like her. I'd rather be a car mechanic like my father. She was offended. I had wanted to offend her, but I felt guilty. The labels of attack and desire did not express the work identities of either my mother or my father. For she was a teacher, a superb clothes maker, her creative outlet, you can see a sample here, her way of being present. And my father, he owns the regional coach company. But the objects of Hoover and Carr, however, they strongly signified the positions I saw them in. And driving the car could take me further. In my adolescent eyes, being a wife and mother was simply boring. Women's lives were uninteresting, women's conversations tedious, and I wanted out. I still wanted to be a girl, but in a different world where I would have an exciting life. Years later, when I was at university in London, while wearing a shirt, I felt miserable. I knew how to iron, but I felt deprived, since my doing it meant there was no one to take care of me. It had to be me to do my ironing. I had grown up with maids. My feelings sounded like those of an over-pumped young woman. The ironing was a very small thing, but the feeling of no one to take care of me was not minor. And the ironing only revealed the significance of having my shirt ironed for me to give me a feeling of proper care. So the trigger of a situation of felt neglect revealed the mingling of the object of the iron with the activity of ironing with my social position as someone used to consume paid-for ironing services. So now... While living in Boston, in a flat with a kitchen designed by a feminist, I realized the significance of domestic objects for lifestyle. The, sink had, the kitchen had sink, cooker, dishwasher, cupboards and rubbish bin, all within the distance of an arm stretch. Waste disposal built into the sink and an open plan space connecting with the dining room. Ease of work and sociability connected. This was a social space that also had clear templates for action, delineating roles about the interaction of the machines and the activities <coughs> of my partner and I. There were, these were largely invisible in a seamless web. However, our ability to engage in sociability with the goods was specific to our historical times, social class, gender location, and lifestyle. We followed the templates for action, conscious of some of these templates, modifying some, and not aware of others. After I had a child, I perceived that our apartment needed to be cleaned more often. 
My mothers and babies group met in our place in rotation, and babies were soon bouncing on the floor. There was more laundry to do. Babies' clothes, bedding, towels, and strangely, shirts that would previously be sent to commercial laundering started to crop up in the laundry basket. More cooking was done because of the babies' meals. We were going out less, and we were having more people in. There was more shopping for food and laundry material, and new things were now needed, like disposable nappies and baby wipes. As an academic, I was working more from home, and somehow home was making me work for it more and more. It was at this time, I was teaching at Brown University then, that I came across this literature on technological developments for the home, domestic routines, and mother's work. And this was to have a profound effect on my thinking. The research subjects of the industrial technological world dwindled, and I entered the study of household technologies and the division of labor in the home. So from a car mechanic interest, I turned to focus on hoovers and their drivers. Mothering, family life, and the everyday world of relationships between women and men and their children. So, back in England, my work, while at the University of Leeds, from 93 to 99, concerned the development of the Gender Analysis and Policy Unit. Mothering and new ways of living in family and home life figured highly in my agenda. These matters expanded again with my moving to the Open University, working on chiefly the National Everyday Cultures Programme, and the Cultural Capital and Social Exclusion Project. In CCSE, in particular, I engaged with a significant array of methods <coughs> consisting of focus groups, household interviews and observations, a national survey, and a multiple correspondence analysis. In my trajectory, I see how my experience has informed my ways of knowing about the social world. Interests, abilities, opportunities, and skills are easy to discern. Some unconscious processes were also at work. They always are. My interest now is about the connections between personal life and the material world of the objects we live with. And I told you something of my personal biography and reflections about these. I encountered the literature on households and gender at a juncture where my personal intellectual and professional life made them significant. These set marks of other people, and it's always people who set marks on us, not abstract forces, from other places and times upon my actions. And I apply the principle of tracing these connections, as I do in my own history, in my work of studying technology and culture in everyday life. This is how I got to know about the 24 families in my ethnographic study of my last book. Technology culture family is informed by archival research of changes in technological innovation for the home since the early 20th century. Its central narratives, a narrative of stories of home life, 
based on 99 individual biographies, observations, and uses of technologies. Focuses on activities like cooking, cleaning, caring, consuming, deciding about relationship dilemmas and sexual life. So personal matters drive these stories as events, often unnoticed within social patterns. Let me give you two examples. One, the creation of a family designed according to wishes. It's the lesbian household of white Josie and Afro-Caribbean Nadia. They were able to have children with black donor insemination and have a multicultural lifestyle as they imagined, wished, because of the available reproductive technology they were able to use. Another case, the home with five TV sets and three computers where Clina Marion and her husband, her unemployed husband, Trevor, collected junk from skips and reconstructed them, because, which they were able to do because of his technical capital, giving the family access to things otherwise impossible. These are only two of many stories in the book and in the research, relating to mundane practices in the reproduction of our bodies, cleaning, cooking, sexual life, and our relations with those we live with, how we care for each other, what we can negotiate about within systems of reciprocity, like what I can ask you to do for me, but it's not right to ask her. And all these stories connect ordinary practices to the technological patterns of a world driven by forces that go beyond any individual. But my eye is on what individuals want, like, do, imagine. I demystified the idea of home, family and personal life being simply created by what happens in the external world. Individual choices constitute the social world we make. Of course, the individual is social through and through, and behavior follows patterns. But the world is made by us, an equal and hierarchical us, and we can change it. As I know about social life in sociology, Using my own experience, I ask about the place of this method in social sciences. My view is that it's impossible to know well by any other means. My trajectory could be read as an objection to methodological purism. It is in favor of deep immersion with an array of tools for generating the most reliable research material and conclusions. Complex research questions demand approaching through various angles, making best use of the sociologist's own experiences. The issues I have been investigating, culture, technology, everyday life, are just such complex social matters, as Marie showed diasporas are, and Kath will show her themes also are. So my methodological eclecticism 
provides a means of checking on the plausibility of my interpretations about experiences, desires, and imaginations of social life. And this is how I have known so far. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Elizabeth. And we come now to the third of our inaugurals by <coughs> Professor Kath Woodward. Not many academics can claim expertise in the field of men's boxing and motherhood, but Professor Kath Woodward is notable for the breadth as well as the depth of her interests. As a girl in Wales, sport was one of the key influences in Kath's early life. Her father was on the committee of Glamorgan County Cricket Club and she grew up playing cricket and watching rugby and boxing and she herself played lacrosse for the Wales National Under-18 team. Kath's first degree at Bristol University was in philosophy and politics. It was motherhood which inspired her first substantial piece of research which was on places of giving birth. She undertook this research because she wanted to gather evidence to support her case for a home birth and she succeeded insofar as two of her four children were born at home. Issues surrounding motherhood were the focus of her PhD at Sheffield Hallam University, where she subsequently became a lecturer. Kath's association with the Open University goes back to the 1970s, when she studied literature and took a BA Open degree. And after the top-down style of teaching she'd been used to, she found the OU a revelation. And in 1979, she became a tutor, as associate lecturers were then called, and she also served as a tutor counsellor. You remember them? In 1992, she became a full-time member of the OU when she was appointed staff tutor in sociology and a lecturer in women's studies. Kath has worked on a range of social science and interdisciplinary courses at undergraduate and postgraduate level, in women's studies, cultural and media studies, and sociology. She was chair of the largest population OU module to date, DD100, Introduction to the Social Sciences, and also recently chaired D857, Gender, Technology and Representation. She's the author of the innovative 15-point course, This Sporting Planet, the Social Science Faculty's first sports studies course. She's been involved in a large number of TV programmes and audio productions for the OU. Sport, then, has been an important strand of Kath's work. She's unusual in having written a great deal about men's boxing, even making a film called A Bloody Canvas about boxing and art for RTA, the Irish broadcaster. And she's currently doing work around the rapidly, around the rapidly approaching Olympic Games, and her latest book, Sex, Power and the Games, is due out in June. A key area of Cass's expertise is feminist theories and gender identity. And most recently applying these, she's been applying feminist material critiques to the field of sport. Her interest in feminist critiques and methodologies and the state of contemporary feminism were explored further in her 2009 article, Why Feminism Matters, a set of cross-generational dialogues written with her daughter, Sophie Woodward. Kath works on cultural change and diversity in the Centre for Research into Sociocultural Change, CRESC, and is particularly interested in gendered and diasporic identities in the context of cultural transformations in the field of sport. Kath also belongs to the OU Centre for Citizenship, Identities and Governance Research Group, 
where she's been involved in developing psychosocial approaches and exploring affect in sports embodied practices and representations. And following her work as director of the OU Race Equality Project, Kath has remained involved in a range of race equality and diversity activities within the university. Colleagues, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Professor Kath Woodward. Thank you, Alan, and, yeah. and thank you, everybody, for coming, and thank you, I'm about to sound like the Oscars, aren't I? Anyway, I won't cry. Thank you, Marie, and thank you, Elizabeth, for all your ideas and your, your hard work in putting this together, and Carol from Communications and the Techie guys, for putting this together and making it work, I hope. Uh, the OU has been a really big part of my life, as Alan said, and so for me, I'm really proud to be here today, and this, this matters a lot to me. I thought we were here to party, but having been to um, Engin Eisen's uh, inaugural, I discovered that uh, it's the inaugural lecture that actually gives you the right to speak as a professor, uh, which is a bit alarming, actually, because I've been shooting my mouth off for quite a while. Uh, so provided you don't heckle too much, uh, any Celtic fans? Anyway, uh, provided there's not too much heckling, I should be um, okay. So here goes. Uh, inaugurals, however, do suggest beginnings. They suggest that something's starting. And one colleague who sent her apologies for today wished me well in my future career. Um, for me, this is a bit of an ave aqua wale, actually, because um, although... I can actually see light at the end of the head of department tunnel, and I have lots of exciting ideas, actually, ahead in terms of research on the politics of visibility and being there, all related to the Olympics, of course, and possibly other careers like dog breeding, which might be the revival of an old career rather than a new one. And boxers often make comebacks. This talk's more of a reflection on progress so far, really, in the circuitous path of my work and that my work and my life has taken me. But it's opened up lots of ideas and talking to Marie and Elizabeth about this occasion has, has opened up ideas about what, what we know and also what I want to know and how I want to know it. My methodological journey through motherhood and boxing is a somewhat unusual one, especially to be made by a white middle-class Welsh woman who has recently achieved a status even higher than that of a chair and become a grandmother. But it's not a linear narrative. And if anything, I think in some ways, I think boxing comes first in my life. One of my earliest memories of childhood was waking up in the middle of the night and going into our parents' bedroom and listening to a big fight on the radio with Dad. Jersey Joe Walcott, live from the garden, uh, not my garden, Madison Square Garden, uh, a comeback heavyweight, if ever there was one, uh, in the early 50s, seemed very exciting anyway. Dad would have been quite surprised, actually, to find me writing about boxing, but sport has always played a really big part in my life, in our life, me and my family. Cricket's probably more our sport, uh, and football is what pulls at the heartstrings for most of my family. Up the baggies for one of us, Wednesday till I die for most of the rest of us. 
But for me, it's rugby that makes me wake up in the morning and thank the Lord I'm Welsh. (laughs) But it's boxing and boxing culture that have become my main empirical sporting research interests. Motherhood too has been a focus of my research interests for a variety of reasons, including most powerfully the role of motherhood in my life. Having four children makes you think about it, when you can grab some time to think about it. But it's it's been one of the most uh, the most all pervasive elements of my life. There's no retirement package with motherhood. But however, one of the um, one of the productive elements of this has been engaging in conversations across generations with Sophie, our youngest, who has not only given us a little grandson with a boxing father, but has also given me... Oh, there he goes. (laughs) Guru. Uh, One of the best experiences of collaborative writing, academic writing, uh, that I've had. And that's really saying something for someone who's been at the OU for over 30 years, and we do a lot of collaborative academic writing. Motherhood is relational. It's also an ongoing process, and it's iterative. Mothers, to some extent, just are, and motherhood is often a cultural absent presence, which nonetheless is often read as biological or individual or personal rather than social, except where mothers fail to conform to social norms and become social problems. We're all, of course, some U.S. claims about men giving birth notwithstanding, as Adrian Rich said, of woman born. And I have done quite a fair bit of mothering, but motherhood is also about being mothered. Sadly, our mother, I say our because my sister's here too, so she's our mother, uh, she died 11 years ago. But I mention her because although she certainly never espoused feminism <laughs> overtly herself, I think she was an inspiration to my feminist politics as someone who studied science at Cardiff University in the 1930s, when so few few people from her background, especially women, went into higher education. Motherhood has also been a concern of feminist activism and theory, albeit often in contentious ways, and feminism is central to the theoretical approaches which inform the methodologies I've espoused, especially in dealing with some of the problems which embodied experiences like motherhood raise. The purpose of the personal aspects of this preamble is to locate me and when you get to my stage you're allowed to do it uh, and to present where my methodological journey takes me and in particular to highlight one of the main concerns which I have in relation to the research process and how knowledge is produced within the two empirical fields highlighted in my story motherhood and boxing albeit a strange alliance Uh, probably an unhappy marriage, as Heidi Hartman used to say, uh, of patriarchy and capitalism. However, they may look unrelated and even starkly oppositional, but they're not, not in my methodological story anyway. Each one invites narratives of authenticity, truth, and the privileging of insider status, which can create problems as well as possibilities for the researcher. Each, boxing and the embodied practices of sport, Uh, in general, and motherhood raise big questions about how to know and the privileging of the insider. Practical knowledge, having practical knowledge in the field. Do you know more and better if you do it or you've done it yourself? How does the privileging work and how can you find out how it works? How can you deal with it? It's partial knowledge, situated knowledge, 
both, really. It also raises questions about the relationship between different elements in the assemblage of events, people, flesh, body practices, inner worlds, social worlds, power relations, texts, images, and practices. Some of these elements have traditionally within sociology been seen as aspects of social life that demand distinctive, separate methodologies. My journey takes me to the point where the elements, ideas and methodologies have to be seen as entangled and intersecting. My research, as Alan said, my first sort of sustained research project was about quantitative work on the place of birth. and it arose out of the debates within the women's movement and collective action and, as he said, a, a, a strong desire to provide robust evidence for having at least some of our babies at home. This project raised some really important issues about the extent to which, firstly, the personal is always collective and political. The personal is not synonymous with the individual and individualism politically, And secondly, about how knowledges such as those based on the collection of particular forms of quantitative data can be privileged above other knowledges. Why is that evidence more robust? Especially those based uh, on lived experience and personal testimony may be devalued. An inequality with particular resonance in the field of motherhood, where this privileging is also gendered. This led to later research on the psychosocial engagements with with motherhood as a contingent and discursive regime, bringing together strong elements of the enfleshed reality, actuality of motherhood and psychic investment. I worked on motherhood in popular culture and in political rhetoric, deploying discursive, semiotic and textual analyses. Motherhood and boxing look separate and distinct and it's supported by popular conceptions of this. In her book on boxing, Joyce Carol Oates described the enfleshed celebration of masculinity that constitutes boxing. Those are my words, actually, not hers. She didn't call it that. Other people never say enfleshed. It's only me who says this. Uh, which, Which boxing makes and remakes and says that boxing is for men what childbirth is for women. A very unfashionable binary, especially in 2012, when women are boxing in the Olympics for the first time since there was a display in 1904, but its significance relates to, firstly, the centrality of enfleshed experience and corporeality, and the somewhat deceptive elision of bodies and biology in both cases, motherhood and boxing, and secondly, the absolute and essential claims of the sex-gender binary. Oates's claim seems quaintly out of date in the 21st century, But boxing is anomalous, so embedded in contradictions and ambivalences, which is what the sport feeds and recreates in terms of the desires in which which people, people who practice it, uh, invest. These oppositional inflections, which are expressed in Joyce Carol Oates' binary logic of boxing and motherhood, also demonstrates the tensions between objectivity and subjectivity in ways of knowing. How we know is shaped by who we are and where we are in the process, but these relationships are neither neutral nor innocent. There are questions to be asked about which knowing and which knowledge counts and which is more creditable and reliable. 
Feminist work on motherhood has always been haunted and even threatened or undermined by accusations of subjective bias, the problems of essentialism and anxieties about researching what really matters to you personally and the fields in which you participate. The gendering of these affiliations in relation to motherhood has raised for me the issue of the gender-neutral masculinity in sports research, where male researchers who adopt ethnographic or participant observation or observing participant approaches fail to acknowledge their own gender identities. Gender is an absent presence in sport as well as in, um, as in motherhood, though one might not expect it. Ironically, it's Louis Vacan who's accused feminist epistemology for its privileging of women's lived experience and by implication the securing of the category woman, when he, in his own, admittedly, really interesting, it's a really good read, actually, um, um, and it's, it's a observing participant work on boxing. However, he fails to acknowledge either his whiteness or his privileged status as a senior tenured academic and public figure in the processes of making knowledge. In boxing, as in most sports research, masculinity and the gendered situatedness of the researcher has passed unmarked and unremarked. It's out there, embodied in the, embodied in the field, rather than as if it were in the researcher and his collusions with hegemonic masculinity. Women's collusions have come under more scrutiny to the extent that the very category woman has been challenged and subverted. I'm oversimplifying this bit. Uh, anyway, there can, be, there can be problems. I mean, there can be problems of access in relation to gender, locker rooms being one of the sites mostly not available to women in the men's gym. Ironically, though, actually in boxing, in the, in the gym, it becomes unnoticed after a bit, especially if your entry point as a researcher is as a mother. They somehow are seen as asexual, so you can sometimes get in to the locker room. Um, this is a revelation, isn't it? Um, <clears throat> however, there are advantages to acknowledge distance and to the guarantee that shared intimacies, either in the gym with a researcher of the same sex who joins in, or among women who have the shared experience of motherhood. There's a limit to this. Are they anything more than encounters that give expression to dominant discourses? The problem is that in sports research, hegemonic masculinity has been seen as a cultural product of the social world of the subjects, but not of the researcher, nor of those who are engaged in the research. My work on boxing has suggested a range of methodologies and strategies. Access to the field can be gained in different ways of being an insider, of which embodied practices is one. It's only one of the ways. Making a film or a television program, which I've done, and it gives you great street cred in boxing. For me, in boxing, this has meant hanging about rather than hanging out in the gym. Uh, it recognizes that the, the centrality of embodiment and of flesh goes much further than joining in. It also means acknowledging the embodied presence of the researcher and differences as well as commonalities, shared social worlds and possible psychic investments between the researcher and the subjects of research. Participation in boxing and the sport's lived experience requires 
requires more. It occupies a much wider space than those of the gym and the ring. Many boxers, for example, cite an heroic figure, whether a boxing superstar or a family member, as their inspiration for going into the sport. This demonstrates, I think, some of the interconnections between culture and body practices, as well as the relevance of transforming cultures to practice and the demand for methodologies that can engage with these mixes. There are not only contingent and shifting discourses of motherhood, sporting practices and cultures too are interrelated, framed in diverse ways, which are often expressed in the language of morality. Good and bad mothers, or boxing should be banned, it's brutal, it's primitive, we shouldn't do it, you're either for it or against it. These two areas of experience are haunted by discourses of authenticity as well in sport. For example, in sport, being a real fan and rather than a fair-weather supporter. And it applies in relation to sport in going to every game or actually practicing yourself, being there, or in relation to motherhood in having the shared experience, the shared embodied experience, where motherhood seems equated with childbirth. Midwives often tell um, women that they, women in labour, that they have had a had a baby themselves, even when they haven't, because they somehow gives them more credibility. Um, binary logic has its attractions, however, in a world of uncertainties and insecurities. Gaining access and being accepted, and being immersed in the field, can come from being part of culture as well as from the embodied practice. I've explored the relationship in more detailed ways in my work on making the film A Bloody Canvas on art and boxing. I was the only woman who's actually um, shown on it, you know, in, in, in the, it's all interviews with, um, with aging, aging boxers, and um, I know I should have worn makeup for it, but I... <laughs> Anyway, uh, apart from that, um, uh, the, the, the ways in which I, I felt that I was actually inside in spite of only having, only having stories from the outside because I was accepted as someone who was part of that, um, of that culture and that world. Uh, and that it, it was being outside in many ways, vi visually outside, but also being uh, implicated in the process, also of making different connections between art and boxing culture and practice and producing knowledge. This all points to the need to engage with the representational, discursive and textual along with the embodied practices and joining in. And it means recognising that being inside takes many different forms and isn't only about shared embodied experience. In conclusion, I would say that the practices of undertaking research involve relationality between the researcher, the field, the place, the things, the people, all the strands of knowing and how we know that which make up knowledge. It can often be about asking the right questions, which requires inclusion and not separation, either of what makes up the field or its methodologies. Being inside takes many different forms. Knowledge is fluid and contingent, and the processes of knowledge production 
involve a balance of relationships methodologically. Working through issues in relation to these two seemingly unrelated areas of boxing and motherhood have been and are particularly productive because bodies are highlighted by these two fields and this has generated more explanation and exploration of the social, political and cultural relations which shape and influence bodies and flesh and flesh is itself affected by, by the ways in which they're constructed culturally. However, texts, body practices, and in flesh situations mean that researchers are embodied too in the production of knowledge, which is how we know what we know and what we, well, I definitely don't know. But it gives you more idea of which questions you then want to ask before you go on to find out more. Secondly, methodologically, the relationship between the insider and outsider is central to these two fields. I'm right inside motherhood with a passionate commitment, and I'm pretty outside boxing. Uh, but I am a fan, albeit a faint-hearted one. It's mostly at a distance. Sky, pay-for-view, and now you have to have Sky and subscribe to Box Nation a double whammy to be a boxing fan. Boxing remains incredibly exciting, however, and it's anomalous, anachronistic, it may seem, in the 21st century, but there is something celebratory as well as dangerous about its endurances. And there's something about the flesh fighting back in both motherhood and boxing. Gillian Rose. I'm the Associate Dean for uh, Research in the Social Science Faculty, and it's my uh, privilege uh, to bring this part of the event to a close. Uh, I'm going to try and draw some themes uh, from those three uh, wonderful talks we, we've just had before we all start partying, Kath, and I hope you're going to lead us with some uh, wine and music uh, outside. I'm going to be uh, brief. Um, but it is a real uh, privilege uh, to, to share a, a platform with Professors uh, Woodward, uh, Gillespie and, and Silver. Um, and I think we're all really very fortunate to have heard three such eloquent uh, justifications for the lively uh, and shifting engagements with the world that, that doing social science entails. Uh, I think it's all about, and we've, we've heard this, uh, fantastic exemplifications of that, about asking questions. Asking questions uh, of yourself, uh, of who you are, uh, of where you are, the things that you're with, the people that you're with, the relationships between all those things, and then continuing to ask those questions as all those things shift and change around you and you yourself also shift. And one of the things that struck me about all three of the, uh, of the talks that we heard just now was their uh, abiding interest in the everyday uh, in everyday spaces, in fact, and as a geographer, I'm now going to suggest, of course, everyone is a closet geographer, even if you can't quite bring yourself to admit it. Uh, all those workplaces, the schools, the kitchens, uh, the spaces where, where the media uh, circulate. Uh, and in thinking about you know, how really very complex those places are, how they relate to each other, how they bleed into each other, uh, whether that's through uh, looking at particular material locations like Bush House uh, or those digital diasporas, 
whether it's about comparing to uh, car manufacturing plants in different countries, uh, or whether it's about the conceptual work that can bring things together in really quite uh, surprising and enlightening ways. I've never thought about motherhood and boxing in those kind of ways before, Kat, so thank, thank you. Um, and, of course, one of the reasons for looking at the everyday is that, that we learn from it. Uh, using all sorts of methods and different kinds of evidence and data and asking all those sorts of questions that, that Elizabeth, Marie and, and Kath took us through. You know, what, what sort of data do we need to understand the everyday? What kind of data does the everyday give us? Uh, what is the role of experience uh, and truth uh, and authenticity? Uh, and running through all those questions and the ways that, that uh, there are different ways to answer them and awareness of the power relations, the power relations that saturate uh, any, any claim to knowledge. Uh, and I also heard a, a common commitment to working with non-academic uh, audiences uh, and non-academic forms of, of knowledge and expertise. Again, whether that's databases or boxes or, or household students. And then to innovative ways of presenting that work um, in websites, in films, uh, in different, in different, uh, uh, through different media. Um, and I think that's really very appropriate for a university that obviously prides itself on, on open learning. Um, but also it offers a, perhaps a kind of model for open research that I think the OEU has kind of implicitly been doing for a while, but perhaps you know, really is now the moment where we have uh, extraordinary media now uh, and the reach of, of, of new forms of media at our disposal. Perhaps we could think more, more carefully, more reflexively about what an open research model would look like, where we take those kind of demanding testing questions that we've been taken through this afternoon and, 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 and give them to, to much wider audiences to do what they will uh, with them, and we then engage and learn again from those responses. And I think with professors like, like these in our faculty, I really hope that's something that uh, social sciences can take, can take a lead on uh, in, in, the, uh, in the OU. Um, a couple more things, and then I will uh, finish. Um, Alan touched on this in his introductions too, but I just wanted to emphasise from a kind of faculty viewpoint, because one of the other things that, that uh, Marie, Kath and Elizabeth have all done is that kind of behind-the-scenes kind of organisational management, dare I even say leadership work, um, without which the university simply uh, wouldn't function. Uh, things like uh, running uh, the National uh, Everyday Cultures Programme uh, and that then feeding into CRESC's funding, working to get more funding for CRESC, uh, leading and, and directing CRESC, nurturing a whole generation of, of, uh, of other researchers through those kinds of uh, research projects. Uh, and then projects uh, are, are, the, are absolutely fundamental to the, to, the, to the character and the identity of the faculty, uh, the teaching particularly uh, around DD100 uh, and its successors, uh, and then um, Kath in particular currently a head of department. Not a glamorous role, I speak with <laughs> feeling on that one, uh, but one without which, as I say, this, this place wouldn't, wouldn't work. The final remark I want to make uh, is a much more personal one, and here I know I, I can't speak on, on behalf of the audience. This is something for, for me. Uh, but it's still uh, very important for me, I think, after uh, all these years, to see uh, three women uh, who are mothers uh, gaining recognition for their academic excellence. Uh, I think motherhood played actually in very interesting ways through all those three talks. Um, and I, for one, are, are extraordinarily glad it, it was there. Um, as I know, uh, Kath, uh, Elizabeth and Marie still do, you know, I, I still have conversations with, with younger women researchers saying, you know, how, how can they combine being a mother with being a successful academic. Uh, I know that conversation's ongoing. After all those years of feminism, and motherhood never goes away. Uh, we're still uh, having to have those discussions. And the answers are always full of, of difficulties as well as the pleasures uh, of being uh, a mother. 
So for me in particular, who I feel I'm still struggling to be both a good enough mother and, and a good enough uh, academic, it's been absolutely inspiring to hear three mothers, three women, and also three superb uh, academic uh, professors uh, this afternoon. So thank you so much, uh, Kath, Marie, Elizabeth. Thank you. Thank you.